Welcome to episode 142 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Listen, I want to pull back the curtain before we get started and confess something that we do all the time, but nobody gets to see, and that is because we're recording this and you do this wonderful job of inserting that beautiful music in between the opening and the first Hey Brother, we do this like, well, would you call it like, yeah, it's like a little dance. This back and forth head, head bob. But you know what it reminds me of is who is it? Isn't there a character in Charlie Brown that does the head bob while the piano gets played? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, they all have their own like distinct little dance. Isn't it Peppermint Patty? Yes, and somebody somebody does the head bob back and forth laterally, and that's exactly what you and I do in sync every I week. Think it's, I think it's Peppermint Patty. I don't know. This is great no podcasting. Somebody, yeah, somebody email I, us and tell us. I already regret this. So let's do some <laughs> affirmations and denials. Horrible opening. Let's do some affirmations and denials. How about you kick it off? So I'm affirming. Uh, I discovered this entirely by accident this morning when I was doing my Bible reading. So Logos uh, Bible software, if you've ever had to decide between Logos and Olive Tree and Accordance, um, here is the deciding factor. Logos Bible software can take any uh, document or book or whatever that you've got in your library and read it out loud to you at variable speed. So it's robot voice, so it's a little annoying. But if you have a little bit of technical know-how, you can then have the computer read it into a recording software and create an MP3 file that you can listen to through your (laughs) podcast app. So you have to do it in real time. So I don't you remember like high speed dubbing and like old school like tape recorders. Yeah, it's a little bit like that, only digital. But uh, there's a couple books that I have for my library that I, I bought that I'm I've been meaning to get to and I just have too much other reading to get to. So I'm going to be uh, scrubbing those over to audio format uh, overnight and then putting them in my lineup for podcasts. So um, don't break copyrights. Don't distribute this stuff. But if you've got Logos, it's a really great way to listen to these books. You would find a way to do this. Like that seems like it's exactly up your alley because one it's more efficient, right? Yeah. So you said you have stuff you want to read. You're fitting in more good content. But two, it's just your kind of genius to figure out how to do that. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not that hard. I'm not going to say how to do it just in case somehow it's a violation <laughs> of copyright law to do it. I don't want to be arrested or sued. But uh, it's not that difficult. I'm sure that our listeners can figure it out. Timestamp. Yeah, I could always just edit that out, too, if I needed to. It never happened. We were never here. It never happened. <laughs> that will not be edited out. What are you uh, What are you affirming today? I'm going back to music since I, I'm just, I think we're a little bit different in this. I'm just a music guy. Like, if there, it's not that I don't, I, mind, I don't mind the quiet. I enjoy some times of solitude. At the same time, I could just listen to music all day. Yeah. I mean, how do you feel about that? Um, I used to be that way, but I'm just, I'm not really anymore. I think I've kind of like, I don't know, maybe I'm weird, but I've sort of replaced music with podcasts. So I used to listen to a lot of music, but now it's, it's mostly like if I've got some time that I want to just fill my ears with something, it's, it's podcasts or audiobooks or something like that. Okay. Well, so for everybody else who is okay with being less productive in life (laughs) and 
doesn't want to have content all the time. I'm affirming with a band named Comrades, C-O-M-R-A-D-E-S. They are a quote-unquote Christian band. Actually, that came out weird, like they're not really Christian, <laughs> but I'm making them. They are a band that loves Jesus. Their music is very theologically themed. And they have a brand new album that's just come out, and it's called For We Are Not Yet, We Are Only Becoming. So you can check them out on Spotify or wherever else you like to get music. But I really enjoy them. It's post-hardcore or post, I would say, punk rock, depending on what you want to categorize it as if you're really one of those nuanced people. But super good. It's actually unique because it's just a three-piece set, and you'd never guess that from listening to it. And also, the wife... Uh, the wife, the guitarist, <laughs> and the bassist. <laughs> I got that mixed up. Uh, the guitarist and the bassist are married, and it's both a female vocalist, obviously, and a male vocalist. Super good. So really amazing. Comrades, for we are not yet, we're only becoming. Go check that stuff out. It's great. You would love it, Tony. I don't know about that. Sometimes you Your wife would love it. Okay, so if she would love it, and you're saying it that way... <laughs> I'm going to guess that I would rather listen to podcasts. Yeah, that's definitely yeah. true in this case. Yeah. So uh, presuming that that wasn't, you weren't denying my affirmation. Do you have a denial? I mean, I could. That's not what I had written down, though. <laughs> so this is, a, this is a denial that comes with a lot of love with it. So okay. um, maybe our, our listeners just don't know how to use Twitter but I'm denying the failure to properly use hashtags. So I posted on our Reform Brotherhood Twitter a little uh, a little note that said uh, something along the lines of "What's the Lord doing in your life?" hashtag Spiritual conferencing. And yeah. we had great listeners who participated, but they just responded and didn't use the hashtag. So I'm kind of like, use uh. the hashtag. So. There's a lot of love here. Maybe next time I need to get more like nuanced with my instructions. Maybe they're so used to us like nuancing everything to the nth degree that they were like, oh, he didn't say to use the hashtag. So we better not. Man, I actually feel a heavy weight of conviction in what you're saying, because I guess I don't know what I'm doing either. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense now that you'd want to tag that out so you could go through and click on the tag and see all yeah. responses. Yeah. So let me ask this question, because here's something I never understood. I've heard for and against this. If you are referencing someone in your tweet and you're referencing them right away, it's the first thing you're going to put their handle in. It's the first word of your sentence. Do you put the period or you don't put the period? You know, I know in way back in yesteryear of Twitter, so like a year and a half ago, I don't know when this changed. It used to be that if you wanted to do a direct message that no one else could see, you just did their uh, their Twitter handle with nothing in front of it. And that would go directly to them that nobody else could see it. I don't think it works that way anymore because there's actual direct messaging that's built into Twitter now. So I, I don't quote me on that. I could be wrong. Um, I know that it doesn't hurt to do the period except for it uses up one of your precious 280 characters. But I don't think you have to anymore. I could be wrong, though. That's actually the best explanation I've heard heretofore. So it, there was actual function for it. It wasn't just like a convention. Right. Yeah. It used to be that if you if you just had the Twitter handle at, like as the first thing, that no one else could see it besides the person addressed in the Twitter hand, the Twitter uh, handle. So people would put that period to kind of break break that algorithm so it would allow it to be seen by everybody. But like when you reply to a tweet, like if you click on reply. 
it puts that person's username in the beginning of it, and that's publicly visible. So I don't think that Twitter functions that way anymore. I don't think you have to do the period anymore. So clearly this week we need a chance to redeem ourselves. We got to throw out there another tweet, get a hashtag started, yeah. get people involved. Hashtag spiritual conferencing, folks. I love it. I love that idea. I saw there were lots of great tweets and response, and that's the way get some other voices in this. I'd love to hear what other people are learning, what God is teaching them. Yeah, at the end of the day, I think I'm probably mostly denying my own inability to give instructions clearly on Twitter. So <laughs> so we'll, we'll go with that. Uh, so loving. How about you? So this week I'm denying against theological inconsistency in evangelism. And I know I've said this before, and this is going to sound a little bit like I'm standing on a soapbox, but I'm not. I'm getting my feet massaged right now <laughs> by a roller. That's where, that's where my feet are firmly implanted right nice. now, that roller. But here's what I've been thinking about, and that is, this is just one of those areas where there is, an, almost, I want to say like an intuitiveness, almost like a spiritual intuitiveness, where... Christians who are excited about God and want to share their faith do so in a way where there's a presumption that God is going to bring about through the power of his Holy Spirit conversion and the right to do so. And so they'll even pray against and over people's wills. Like yeah. that's comfortable. They're literally say to people like, I'm praying that God save you. And the person could be like, yeah, it's, it's not going to happen. And they'll say something while well, I'm praying for a miracle. Yeah. And what's funny is we'll say that on Monday or Tuesday or any other day of the week, except the Lord's Day sometimes right. when we're actually speaking about theological matters. And so that thing just always strikes me with, as like such a dissonance. Yeah. And I try to like kind of gently prod my brothers and sisters when we have these conversations because they're right to go out into the fields that are ripe for harvest with the full power and authority of God to speak like that, yeah. to know that God saves his children and that, of course, his word does not go out and return void. But it just strikes me as so funny that we take all that power away sometimes right? when we speak about like, quote unquote, deep theological matters and kind of like when we're trying to be profound or yeah. exegete the, the scriptures. So I know that's like maybe, maybe a little bit soapbox, but. So what you're saying is that you're denying Arminianism. <laughs> <laughs> you got me. Yeah. That, no, it's like a roundabout wah, wah. way of. <laughs> <laughs> roundabout way of getting to that. Well, it's, I mean, it's any kind of theological position, I think, which just creates a dissonance. I think the Armenian one is like the low hanging fruit right. there. That's where we tend to see it more often than not. But it's anybody, I think that just, again, intuitively wants to pray for a loved one right. or a friend. And we recognize, I think all of us, that God knows what's best for us. And so don't take my word for it. Don't take my will. Don't use my human nature as like the means by which you, I should adjudicate whether or not to trust in God. God knows what's best. Right. And so we ought to pray with that kind of power and then go out and speak it. So I'm kind of like, I guess what I'm saying is I'm affirming with that spirit of kind of divine sovereignty and denying against not bringing that into all spheres of your life. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that, um, often gets missed in uh, reformed conversations about like regeneration, conversion, all that kind of that part of the Ordo Salutis is that it's not just like the will or it's not just building faith that the Holy Spirit does, but he actually enlightens our minds in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Yes. So there is sort of this... Um, whether they like it or not. And I, I, I have, I have Arminian. I sound like one of those people that says I have lots of black friends. I have Arminian friends, uh, <laughs> and, and I have conversations with them and, you know, they, they really do 
in their minds believe what they believe. But there does seem yes. to be this like instinct or this impulse that over, like overrides that, I would say, errant perspective that God doesn't overcome people's wills. And so it's interesting because I would say that that actually is sort of the effect of regeneration in the life of a of an Arminian is that they sort of when they sort of allow, I think prayer and I'm, I think we're going to probably talk about this tonight, but prayer is one of those things that when you are really praying like that's that's kind of the, the closest to a pure spiritual act that we get. Because it, it really is kind of like this direct communion with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And when when we act in that sort of pure spiritual sense, not pure in the sense of like purely righteous, but pure in the sense that prayer doesn't, even though we're using our mouth sometimes, it doesn't really have a physical component to it because you're interacting with spiritual things. When we move right. in the Spirit, by our Spirit, it's almost like... We can't help but profess the truth if we're regenerate Christians. And so I think that's where the Arminian or the the Lutheran in some senses, or even the Roman Catholic, you know, the there are regenerate uh, Roman Catholics who, despite their theological errors, still trust in Jesus. Those people, they pray like Calvinists. Like there's not this, oh, Lord, yes, if you right. could... Please try really hard to to convince Jimmy that he really should turn from his way. But I know that you can't overcome his will. So I understand if Jimmy, you know, there's not that there's not that theological dancing that seems like it would have to come with their synergistic model. And I I lump Lutherans into that synergistic model. And there are any any Lutheran that happens to listen to our show is like, I'm not synergist, but like you are. So. um, So, yeah, (laughs) that's an interesting observation. Uh, I love that. We do sound like we're trying to make sure that we identify with Arminians. Like, I got Arminian friends. Yeah. I hang out with tons of Arminians every day. Yeah. I don't yeah, hang out. I don't. Great. I mean, there's not many Arminians that I know around, but I do have a couple Arminian peers <laughs> online. Uh, but you're right. And I loved what you said about prayer. And that really is uh, in part what we're speaking about tonight. And the whole genesis for this conversation is actually from a listener who contacted us via email. And I wanted to bring this up because the email that was sent to us is such a wonderful question. And I'm certain that this listener is not the only person who has thought of this. And the way in which he approached this question is with a heart full of devotion to God. That's really trying to sort out how he should respond to a particular situation. And the situation is this. So he writes saying that he had been recently given some bad news from his doctor. And while he doesn't share the details because they're not important, he's clear that the condition that he has is possibly life-threatening. Yeah. And so he's been a little bit reticent to share this with anybody, but really his closest family and his pastor. And part of that is because of how he knows people will pray for the situation. And what he's really wrestling with is to try to understand how to pray for this. And he's saying that he knows that the most important thing is that he pray and ask for God's will and that the tendency for people will be to immediately pray for healing. Yeah. And this is really the point upon which he's wrestling. And what I love about his question, which I'm going to read in his words in just a moment, is how sincere this is, because he says that he does not want to approach God as if he's some kind of cosmic genie. And he quotes from the the book of John, saying he's aware of verses like this, where John writes in chapter 16, truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy be made full. And so here's the question he asks after, after quoting that verse. He says, 
But shouldn't my first desire and that of all my brothers at church be that God would accomplish his will? I'm already praying for that, and I hope they are too. So if I'm trusting in God to accomplish his will, what's the use in praying specifically for healing? And I think that's such a sincere question. Yeah. And before like, we even really uh, get into like, how we want to respond for this, uh, what I want to say is that I understand this question. Uh, this is something that I've wrestled with. I've had a couple of, as you know, I've had a couple of really unique and interesting and chronic health conditions over the last five years, part of which I am still working through. And so I understand there's an awkwardness when you have a serious health issue yeah. because there is a tendency for some people, brothers and sisters who want to pray, want to be involved. It can be awkward. And sometimes I'll be honest, it can be annoying and nobody really knows what to do, but they want to be helpful. Yeah. And so this is a real question. So I think this is on two sides. It's one, if you know somebody that is going through something that's very serious with their health, this is for you. And if you are the kind of person that is going through something serious with your health. I hope this will be of some edification. So here's what I want to throw out because I've, I've had the processes for myself. And here's what I want to throw out is like three responses, I think, that people have on both sides of this to when they hear about or try to understand what it means to submit to God's will and to understand, does God heal? Will he heal me or the one that I love? Yeah. And there's only three responses, I really think, broadly. The first is that we can just think, well, it's not God's will for any Christian to experience illness. And so being outside of God's will means we are sick. And by not getting well, a Christian is showing his rebellion against God's will that everyone should be well. So that's one view, right? A second would be that a Christian must be resigned to intractable illness because it's God's will. So in other words, in this view, really the Christian is encouraged to, like, quote, submit himself or herself to the will of God, but almost to an opposite end, to get, right. not to get well, but perhaps even to die. And I think there's a third view, which is really the biblical view, and that is to seek and pray for the desires of the heart. And so the, that third view does not really speak of, again, quote, like submitting to the will of God, but encourages the Christian to seek and pray for the desires of his heart. And even though this appears like the least pious of the three options, I believe, I'm convicted that it's really the biblical position. Yeah. You know, the Bible is not a very religious book as men count religion. And so we need to be careful about how we process this particular conundrum, how we wrestle through this, this uh, process yeah. of thinking about submitting to God's will and healing. But I'm going to submit just right from the top that the first two are in error and they result from extreme positions. And that the third one is really what God would have us to do when we're in the midst of sickness, serious or not. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's right on is um, I've heard both positions, right? The uh, the first errant position being kind of uh, the health, wealth, prosperity gospel. Um, but it's also really common in just sort of general evangelical models that like God doesn't want us to suffer. And so if you're suffering, there must be something wrong, right? Kind of Job's, Job's friend's uh, response. And then there is those people that would say, well, who are you to question what God is doing? And so you should, you should just allow it to happen and be thankful for whatever God has given you. Um, and while you can make an argument that there are shades of truth in both of those positions, right? Sure. God's ultimate will is not for any of his elect to suffer, right? His ultimate right. will is for the physical restoration of all of his elect uh, from all of their maladies. 
Uh, that's true. That's a true statement. And on the flip side, it's also true that some of us, for a variety of reasons, are made to suffer for the glory of God. And so we should uh, count it all joy when we are afflicted by all sorts of trials and tribulations, right? So both of those have an element of truth. But as we see so often in um, in our theological pursuits, if you emphasize one element of the truth to the exclusion of a, of a counterbalanced element of the truth, you end up in some sort of theological error. Um, so we have to be really careful. It's I don't actually think that it's true to say that we have to find some sort of middle ground or median position between those two, because I think the real answer, that third answer that you gave is actually on a totally different continuum. It's on a totally Agreed. different understanding because the first two both misunderstand on a kind of primal level the way that God operates in creation. Um, and I, I will we'll talk about that as we get into it. But I think that's a really good way to start our conversation out. Yeah, it's interesting because I think that second one seems like it is the one that's most honoring to God, uh, to say to him, not just whatever your will, but I'm just going to submit to this will. Right. And I think something we'll get into hopefully a little bit later is the difference between submission and obedience. They sound very similar, but they have different implications here. Yeah. The first one is seems like it's easy to rule out. You know, to say like, well, it's not God's will for the Christian to experience illness. At least I think we know one person who loves the Lord dearly and has suffered some kind of physical malady. Yeah. So that one seems easy to rule out. But we need to remind ourselves that God causes, and by causes I mean wills, that he literally is sovereign over this. And in that way, he is a causal agent of both sickness and health in his people and in all people. Yeah. And that's taught so clearly in the Bible that you really have to deliberately ignore it or disbelieve passages that teach it. Because we can go all the way from... David all the way through Paul. I mean, think about Paul, right? I mean, you, you brought up Job and Job was one where we kind of say, well, yeah, Job suffered for a while and then, you know, he was restored, you know, and, the, and it was all great. It was a happy ending. But we think about Paul, you know, praying that he would be released from whatever this thorn in the flesh is like three times. Yeah. And God saying, well, my, my grace is going to be sufficient for you for my powers made perfect in your weakness. And that's just like a really, I think, condemning passage in a way because it's interesting. You, there you have him actually praying for healing, and there you have God giving him an explicit answer and explaining to him in some respect why it is that he needs to continue down that road yeah. of suffering. Yeah. But we see that like it's God's will to afflict even his own people at times and even to the point of killing them. Yeah. So that, that's the easy one to rule out. I think what would be interesting for us to talk about a little bit is why the second one, though, is just not correct because that's the one that I think we can easily default to. Yeah. And, you know, even in our prayers, sometimes I think we get to the point where we can feel guilty. You know, you hear somebody give a testimony of suffering and your heart is just broken under the weight of what they're going through. Right. And again, if you've gone through any kind of physical malady, I think in particular, God gives us sensitivity. This is the kind of being comforted with the comfort that you've also received. We are just put on the floor with what they're going through. Yeah. And even in the midst of that horribleness, we're praying. And sometimes we say, like we give the prayer and then we say, but ultimately, Lord, your will be done. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that sentiment, but it's almost like we feel like we need to tag that on because we're being, we feel guilty that we're just asking outright for healing. So yeah. let's talk about the second one. Why is it an error to say that the Christian must be resigned to intractable illness because it is God's will. Sure. Well, before we dive into that, and, and this this is uh, maybe a little bit of a mild rebuke, but it's not a rebuke directed at our emailer. So we're going to step away from what the email is asking, uh, and, and I'm going to say something, and I want to say this really clearly. 
anyone who tells you that it is sinful to seek medical treatment or to seek prayer for explicitly asking for God to heal you or take away um, an illness or an injury or some sort of difficult situation, anyone who tells you that that is a lack of faith or a sinful thing to do is sharing a lie straight from the pit of hell. So all, th- all throughout the scriptures, we have God's people seeking the Lord to alleviate them from tragic situations. Um, we don't have an explicit instance of Abraham and Sarah praying about their barrenness, but it's hard to believe that they wouldn't have, right? We have Paul directing Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach. So there's directions in the scripture about seeking medical treatment. Luke, who wrote the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, was a doctor. Christ healed. One of his primary uh, signs that he was God is his healing ministry. Um, All throughout scripture, we have this. So It's not a lack of faith to seek medical treatment. It's not a lack of faith to seek miraculous prayer healing. Um, So anyone who tells you that, you can disregard whatever they've said about the subject, because that is not the biblical testimony whatsoever. Right on. So that said, I think the the main reason that we have to understand the second um, the second of those options to be an error is actually a question about theology proper. It's a question about providence, and it's a question about how God operates in his world. So I kind of alluded to this earlier, but the the there's a tendency, particularly among newer Reformed Christians, to sort of slide off of one end of the providence world into a, a sort of hyper-Calvinism. And hyper-Calvinism is not just somebody who's really, really Calvinistic or a Calvinist who's had too much coffee. Hyper-Calvinism is like a specific theological position. And one of the hallmarks of that position is the denial that God uses means. And so Orthodox uh, Reformed Christianity has always affirmed that the primary way that God operates in the world, if not the exclusive way that God operates in the world, is operating through means. And this is what we call his ordinary acts of providence. So it's, it's equally true to say that the rain falls because God causes it to fall as it is to say the rain falls because water condenses around dust particles in the sky and it reaches a critical mass and falls. Those those right. two statements are both true, but they're true on different registers, right? One of them is talking about God as the first or primary cause of all things. And one of those is talking about the secondary causation of natural effect. So we have to remember those things. And I think this question, if I'm reading it, I think that that may be a little bit of where the sticking point or the, I don't want to say confusion because I think he's, he's actually very articulate in what he's asking, but the, the right. difficulty that he's encountering and understanding this, I think is involving that uh, confusion in theology proper. And that kind of comes out in the idea that like, well, God knows when I'm going to die. And so I'm going to, you know, what's the point of praying because he already knows the outcome. And, and the actual reality of it is that, It's exactly opposite. The point of praying is that God knows the outcome and God has revealed to us that he desires to bring about that outcome through the prayers of his people and through the use of created means. And so even, even if he doesn't heal a person through, through prayer, there's still a desired outcome of those prayers that God desires to bring about as a result of, and through those instrumental means of that, of that prayer and of that devotion to the Lord. 
And I don't sense from this writer, or I think from people who generally are asking this question, that there's a defeatist attitude right. here. I mean, his his concern is to respect the will of God exactly. and to respect God himself. And yet at the same time, we have to be clear that when we kind of resign ourselves to this intractable illness theory, that what we're saying is that sickness or affliction that is unresolved in a relatively short period of time indicates that it is God's will that the afflicted person remain sick or perhaps die from his affliction. Right. And I think in our natural state, in our natural minds, that's made even especially convincing if a medical professional pronounces the condition incurable. Right. So I understand if you get that kind of news, that rocks your world. It absolutely rocks your world. And yet what you just said in terms of understanding theology proper, I think we see that by God's good grace manifested in the scriptures. And there's at least, I think, two accounts or three accounts in the New Testament, I think off the top of my head, that show exactly what you said, like a proper understanding of providence. So for example, there's the woman in the gospels who hemorrhaged for 12 years, spending all her money on physicians, none of whom could cure her. And, you know, in Luke, we have, there's Luke, who again is a doctor writing it. And he's the one that gives the most detail of that account. And wouldn't you expect a doctor to give you all the specifics? And he does. And so what's interesting is we should ask, did she submit to, you know, quote, God's will and resign herself to being sick and perhaps dying of her disease? Uh, Of course not. When she could, she did not confuse the inability of physicians to help her with the will of God. She kept seeking the desire of her heart. And this desire led her to Jesus who cured her and who did not even upbraid her for refusing to, for 12 years, you know, submit to God's will for her life. And he doesn't scold her either for being outside of God's will for those 12 years. So there's, even that, there's just a wonderful, like what a rich microcosm. That's actually one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible because... I just love this woman's, like, as an aside, I just love this woman's, like, sense of faith, like, reaching out. And then I feel like if I were there, there'd be, like, slight comedy because, you know, like, the scriptures tell us that there's a crowd pressing upon Jesus. And then he just says to his disciples, like, who touched me? Yeah. Seriously, who, t- who touched me? And they're like, are you kidding me? Like, everybody's touching yeah. me. And I just, I don't know, I love that. So maybe not as funny. Too, but <laughs> so, <laughs> um, and then I think, like, an even more extreme example of this, this proper understanding of providence theology is, these cases in scripture where parents of dying or dead children sought help rather than just submitting to the will of God. I mean, again, they're seeking the desire of their hearts, not even accepting like imminent and present death as God's will for their child. And we have to ask then, were they wrong to do that? Yeah. And I think the answer is no, of course not. Christ never scolds anybody of those who are coming to him and seeking help. But I think that goes back to not just, this sense, well, did they know something that we didn't? I, I don't. Th- I think they just had a better understanding of theology. Yeah. And there was something about being in the presence of Jesus that naturally, in a sense, made them understand what it was that God wanted to accomplish through healing. And so I, I want to be clear, too, that my belief is that God still does heal today in little ways and in small ways. Yeah. It's always, I think, in a sense, miraculous. He does it both through, like you said, the creative means. He does it through medicine. He does it through good doctors. And sometimes he just does it in an absolutely miraculous way. But he still does it, and we should be encouraged to pray for that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, on a certain level, um, this is one of those areas. Something you just said strikes me. You said that maybe they had, they just had a better sense of theology than us. But I think in reality, what it is is that there's a certain sense where sometimes your theology gets in the way of reality. So you you can. True. You can have this idea in your head that like, well, what's the point of prayer? Because God is sovereign and God's going to do what he wants to do regardless. But the point, the fact of the matter is God commands us to pray and he commands us to ask for healing. So there has to be a reason for that. God doesn't issue these capricious, pointless commands. But 
There's also the element that we have to understand again, again, going back to theology proper, that God is um, the way that God actually operates in creation and providence is a profound mystery. So, so we, we rightly can say that nothing we do changes or influences or affects God, right? I mean, that's, that's the whole point of divine simplicity and divine aseity is that nothing that nothing that I can do as the creature changes anything about God. It doesn't change his disposition. It doesn't change his action. It doesn't change his perspective. It doesn't change anything about God. But at the same time, the scriptures reveal in an accommodated sense, a God who reacts and moves and and responds to his creatures. And so, yes, when I pray to God and I ask him to do A, B or C, I mean, kind of going back to the discussion about the Armenians earlier, I ask him to do something and then he does it. It's true on one hand, in a certain sense, that that my prayer didn't actually do anything. God didn't do what I was going to do or didn't do what I asked him to do because I asked him to do it. And it's actually right. more appropriate to say that I asked him to do it because it was already his will to accomplish that through my asking. But on another level, on an accommodated level, the way that God reveals himself to us, right? John Calvin's phrase is that like a, he, he's like a, a father holding us in his hands and he's cooing at us like we coo at our children. On that level, in that register, in that accommodated fashion, it's absolutely accurate to say that God responds like a loving father to his children. And that's the whole point yes. of Christ's, Christ's words in that, in that. What father... When his children ask him for a piece of bread, it's going to give them a stone. Or when he asks them for a fish, it's going to give him a scorpion. And what Christ is saying there is that even your fathers, even even we who are, and obviously Christ isn't evil, but even we who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children. How much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit and give good gifts to those who are his? Well, if we explain that away and we ignore the fact that God reveals himself in accommodated fashion and say, well, that's just words. That's not real. God doesn't really do that. Well, he does really do that, but not in the sense that we would initially think he does. And I, I think that we really just have to get to that point where we understand that even if we don't, you know, on one level, the answer to this question is even if we don't understand what the purpose of prayer is, God commands us to pray and ask for healing. So on yes. one level, it's an act of obedience, not only to pray, um, ourselves, but it's an act of obedience to share our needs with our, our brothers and sisters in Christ and, and ask them to pray for us. At the very least, there's an explicit command that if any of you are sick, you should call the elders and the elders yes. will anoint you with oil right. and pray for you. So there's, there's these explicit commands for us, not only to pray for ourselves, but to share with others, our prayer needs and have them pray for us. So on one level, there's just an, an a matter of obedience in doing that. But I do think that we have to understand that whatever it means that God responds to us, whatever he's revealing about himself in these accommodated ways is true. It's true things that he's revealing in these accommodated ways, even though, you know, in a proper sense, we don't affirm that God responds or reacts to us. We still do know that God was communicating something true to us under the image of him responding and reacting to the prayers of his people. There's absolutely a mystery to prayer in that sense, like you said. And I think one of the things that people sometimes miss in trying to understand how they ought to pray, especially for healing, is that we forget 
that praying in this kind of way for healing is an act of submission and obedience and humility. Because basically you can sum up all of the Psalms with a single word, which is help. Yeah. And so when we pray for healing, when we cry out to God and say, I'm in pain or I'm suffering, I'm uncomfortable, will you come and deliver me? What we are basically affirming is that we are contingent beings, that we need God. And that apart from him, we are nothing, we have nothing, even the life that we have ebbs away without his touch. And that is very humble to pray that way. Sometimes it's almost easier to pray just that God, do your will in my life, rather than to really cry out asking for compassion because you are in a tremendous amount of pain or because you are scared for even your own life. To pray like that is something I think that God honors in the sense that we are, kind of going back to what you said earlier, it is intensely pure because we're pulling down every wall, every pretense, every mask that we put on in front of people, and we're being painfully and fully honest right. with how we feel with God. Yeah. And we know that he wants us, as you said, as children of his, to come and to cling for him, to call out to him as children, not as grown adults, but as children who need deliverance. Yeah. And when we take that away by kind of just saying, well, the religious thing to do is just to submit, even though, again, we're trying to be well-intentioned with our response. I think we're missing this amazing intimacy that God calls us to, that through the blood of Christ, we can come with boldness into the throne room. That's the time to run in and to fall at your knees and to say, God, have mercy and help me, um, especially when our physical nature is in turmoil. Yeah. And so we just, we just miss that. I think that is, per what you just said, maybe an example of where theology gets in the way of relationship. And I want to be careful with that because I'm not just saying it's about relationship abstracted from good theology. However, this is God himself being our father. And so theology can distract us from relationship sometimes. Yeah. And I I had this explained to me this way, sort of this analogy and, and all analogies break down. So take it for what it's worth. But I had it explained to me once that sometimes a parent will begin to hand a child Um, something that the child needs or wants, right? The parent maybe has like a glass of water or uh, like a cookie they want. They want to give to their child. And as they begin to hand the the object or the, the treat or whatever it is to the child, they say to the child, what do you say? And the child learns to say, please, even though the, the parent was already giving them that thing. The parent was already in the act of giving it to them. They say, what do you say? And the child says, please, may I please have that? And so in the very act of giving them this and teaching them to say, please, they're actually teaching them something about not only gratitude, but they're teaching them about how to ask for things. And so I, and this was explained to me as similar to how prayer works for us, is that we, we are being taught by the Father in asking for these things that he already wants to give us. We're being taught to ask for these things in, his, in, in the Son's name because that trains and sculpts us as well. Yes. So there's the element that God wants to do something in us through prayer, that he wants to sanctify us and transform us through prayer. But then there's also the element I was talking about before where God really does, um, in an accommodated fashion, 
he reveals himself as acting according to or in response to the prayers of his people. Um, you know, the, the word says like the prayers of a righteous man availeth much. It's the only, the only passage I've ever memorized in the King James. And for whatever reason, it sticks with me, but, but James says like the prayer of a righteous man, like it's effective to accomplish what it seeks. So we have to, we have to hold those intention. And again, that's where, that's where this sort of new reformed perspective that happens, not new as in like the reform perspective is new, but like a new reformed person, they do slide off into this hyper Calvinism where like they deny the, the, uh, the instrumentality or the way that God operates through means. And we just have to, we have to coax ourselves past that. We have to get past that by studying scripture and recognizing, and prayer is one of those things that like, it helps you get past that is if you are, have a robust prayer life, which my prayer life is, is not nearly as robust as it should be. But if you have a robust prayer life, you can't really hold that, um, that hyper Calvinist perspective. Just like we joke about the fact that our Arminian brothers and sisters, they, they kind of default to Calvinism when they're praying on a certain level, there's a correction that goes the other direction when you're praying too. like when you, when you pray to God and ask him for something, or when you pray and ask him to glorify his own name, whatever your petition is, you're praying, quote unquote, like an Arminian in that you're praying in the sense that you actually are asking God to do something and you're praying as though he may respond and do it for you. So, right. so there's right. this correction that happens in prayer, both directions. And I think I really do think that's part of why God, why prayer is such a fundamental action of the Christian is that there's so much sanctification and spiritual formation and theological formation that happens when we open our spirits up. And when we walk according to the spirit that way, in a, in a way that I really do think is unique, like everything else that we do involves a physical act of some sort. Reading the scriptures involves engaging our minds. And it's not that our minds are disengaged, but prayer really is a genuinely spiritual act in a way that not, not much else is. And so when we, when we engage in that genuinely spiritual act, we walk by the spirit. And as we walk by the spirit, we're conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Right on. And that inclination to ask is something that's almost intuitive, right? So if we've been blessed with godly, good parents, when we ask a favor of them, we ask it expecting that they're going to fulfill it. Right. We have that expectation already almost built in. It's impounded in the question itself. And so I have kind of a thought on this, but it's not fully formed. So here's like some real-time theology. And and as you were speaking, I was really just struck by something you said about this special act, of course, of praying, how spiritual it is. And I wonder, because we know that's clear in the scriptures that, like you said, God uses prayer to do a good work in us. Right. That if we do not submit ourselves to prayer, that's really open and really honest, asking for the desires of our hearts, then there is, I don't want to say a gap, but there is, that is a space where God can do his work. And we ought to bring that into our prayer life so he can do that work in us. Because it is possible that as this person prays for healing, that they, as God works in their life and speaks to them through the scriptures, through that time in prayer as their prayer closet is deepened in that particular way, that there may be a conviction that this is a time of waiting for healing or that it may not come, but that God will provide the strength and refine that person's prayers as they continue to plead before him. But he is faithful to do that work. In other words, I don't think we should take that work out of his hand by presuming that that's not what he wants for us. So I guess my thought is that 
we're kind of, we're, just, we're taking that away from God. We're, we're taking that away from the loving relationship he wants to establish with us where we can just be full out in front of him with all that we feel and all that we want. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, if anyone ha- hesitates to buy what we're saying about the relationship between prayer and sanctification, um, I just want to read this out of Romans chapter eight, starting in verse 26. It says, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what it is the mind Uh, What is the mind of the spirit? Because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purposes, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So we see this direct connection here that the spirit is intercedes for us. And there's a, there's a verbal parallel here, right? So if you go up to verse 22, it says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with the pains of childbirth. So creation is groaning. And then it talks about how we ourselves are groaning. We groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. And then it makes this direct connection between the creation groaning for redemption, us groaning inwardly for our own sanctification, our own salvation, and then the spirit groaning with ways too deep for words. And all of those things culminate and work together for verse verse 29. For those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So this this connection between prayer, even if we don't understand why or what or how, prayer and the Holy Spirit praying on our behalf, interceding on our behalf, and us giving up our prayers to the Holy Spirit to be carried to the Father in a way where he sort of transforms and transmutes them right? according to the will of God. He prays for the saints right. according to the will of God. So even when we pray in ways that we ought not, the Holy Spirit intercepts those prayers and intercedes on our behalf to bring those prayers to the Lord in a way that is according to his will, ultimately for our sanctification and glorification. Yeah, that's beautiful. Because in both of these erroneous opinions that we talked about, there actually is like the same serious theological mistake that's being made. And I think that mistake is an error. It is a presumption of knowledge. It presumes that we can know what the will of God for the future is by reading our present circumstances and therefore know how to submit ourselves to the will of God. And so in that second opinion, which again seems very pious, it assumes that one's present affliction indicates the ultimate outcome, which is false, and that the Christian must submit to that anticipated outcome as if it were God's will. Right. And the first position, that first opinion, which again seems like the one so easy to throw out, it's contrary to Scripture, of course, that the will of God is that every Christian be well, and that those who are not are well or outside of God's will. But in both cases, they're both extreme errors, in my opinion, and though they reach opposite conclusions because you have death in one and health in the other, they share the presumption that one can know from the present circumstances what the will of God is for the future. And and apart from divine propositional revelation, we cannot know what God's will and plan for the future is. And so the third opinion, I think where we settled, is that one should pray for the desires of one's heart, not guessing or presuming what the will of God is for the future. And that rule is followed by the incurable woman. It's followed by parents of dying children, scripture, even Jesus himself, who of course prayed that the cup would pass for him by him if possible. And what makes Christ's case different, of course, 
is that unlike us who do not know and cannot know the future, he could and did know the future, and yet he still prayed for the desires of his heart. Yeah. So I think like what I've been convicted about, even in the course of us talking, is that in Christian theology, I think the proper verb here is obedience, not submission. Yeah. If, if everybody understands me correctly. And it's obedience to God's revealed commands, not submission to some unknown and apart from revelation, unknowable will of God. And so that's, I think, what it's important for us to really dwell on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we just have to get to the point and that this is prayer is not only this um, directly spiritual thing, but it is sort of the supreme act of faith. Right. It, it's yes. it's it's the throwing oneself upon God without visual or direct confirmation of the fact that God hears us. Right. I mean, there are times where we feel super close to God and there are times where we feel super distant from God. And the reality of the matter is that our feelings about closeness or distance to God are all but irrelevant. Right. They're not irrelevant Amen. because the, the way that we feel of it's it's real and it's relevant, but in terms of assessing our actual position and our relation to God in any given moment, it's all but irrelevant. And so the act of praying and praying with boldness, right? It's not just enough to, to meagerly stumble into the throne room of grace, right? We're, we're told that we should come boldly into the throne room of grace. And the reason right. we come boldly into the throne room of grace is because we walk into the throne room as sons coming to see their father, right? It's not, it's not enough to fearfully come into the throne room as um, like uh, peasants stumbling in begging from for some bread from the from the king right it's boldly coming into the throne room because i'm a son of god and the father loves me and he wants to hear what i have to say and he wants to give me good gifts and all i have to do to obtain those good gifts is to come and ask for them now there's there's an element of that that gets taken by the prosperity preachers or taken by the the pentecostal heretic teachers like benny hinn and cranks it up to 11 and gets it all wrong and it becomes this heresy where all of a sudden god right. god really is like a genie in a lamp that we're just rubbing the lamp and we're asking for what we want and God's obligated to give it to us. The prince can come into the throne room and demand something from the king and the king can still look at him and say, no, I'm still the king and you're a prince. So I'm not going to just do what you tell me to do. But more often than not, when the prince comes into the throne room and he asks his father for something, his father delights to give it to him. And so we have to come in and that's, that's where faith comes in, right? I don't feel like I have a special privilege with God. I don't feel like I have a special status with God. I don't feel like I deserve to be in the throne room. And there's a certain element of all of those statements that is true. I don't have a special privilege. I don't have a special status and I don't deserve to be in the throne room, but Jesus does. And so what Jesus obtained for me on the cross and in his resurrection is that special privilege, that special status, and that special access to the throne where the Father really does delight to give me the desires of my heart. Not just to change the desires so they reflect his, but he desires, he he delights to give me the desires of my heart. Like we should step back from that for a second and, and worship and realize how amazing that really is. It's incredible, right? I mean, it's it's almost, it's beyond words. Like hearing you say it, I'm just thinking, man, this is like a sermon happening right now, and I love it. I love it because this is just such a great reminder that we ought to take Jesus at his word, that what he's written for us is the commands for life, yeah. for how to live. 
and that there is a special reality in being able to pray and to pray honestly and openly. And it's almost as if God knew that we would maybe make ourselves complicated and confused by this. And he says, pray for healing. Yeah. And, and not only that, but gather the elders together. Let, anoint, let them anoint you. Pray for healing. Yeah. I, you know, seek forgiveness, seek repentance, and have them pray over you for healing. And that those kind of prayers are powerful and effective. I, I want to say, I love this brother. Yeah. I really do. And I, I love the question that he's asked because this is... This is the kind of theology, like sometimes you and I talk, and I think maybe sometimes because people are listening to a podcast, they get the sense that we're hoping, of course, is edifying, but there's also like an entertaining component to this right. in that one, we're super funny and humorous. <laughs> and two, <laughs> I only just recently got your joke about hyper-Calvinism not being somebody who's a Calvinist who drinks a lot yeah. of coffee. Well done. <laughs> but there's also this sense that, you know, it's interesting. It's, it's intellectually and cerebrally stimulating to think about theology. But this question here, is the kind of theology that happens like across the kitchen table yeah, where people are really wrestling with what it means to walk through life in difficult circumstances, especially when those circumstances impact our bodies. So like in lieu of spiritual conferencing, because we've almost kind of done a lot of that in sharing how we feel about this subject, how the Lord has led us and taught us in this way. I want to, to see if we have any, any recommendations maybe that might be helpful for those who are processing this kind of thing or coming alongside somebody else that they love who's processing this. So let me yeah. go first to give you some time because I'm putting you on the spot. I don't know if you have any kind of recommendations, materials, readings, just thoughts, but I have at least two. And these have been books that have been so wonderfully enriching. They've been like a salve for me. And of course they're by Puritans because why shouldn't they be? Because Puritans <laughs> are awesome. But also more than that, the Puritans I think are a special lot because they were not unacquainted with all kinds of suffering. Yeah. Uh, being that, in the time that they lived, there was a lot of physical suffering. And as we've spoken about before, a lot of death, death early in life, death was very common. And, but beyond that there, a lot of them suffered in their ministries. They suffered and had their children die or their spouses die. They were persecuted. They were ousted. They were humiliated. Yeah. And so two gentlemen in particular that have really spoken to me, I think by God's good grace, uh, the first is Thomas Boston and his book that's just incredible entitled The Crook in the Lot, God's Sovereignty and Wisdom Displayed in Our Afflictions. Just an amazing work Yeah. if you want to understand what it means for God to move in difficult circumstances. And the second would be uh, by a gentleman named Thomas Watson who wrote a book called All Things for Good, which is basically an exposition of Romans 8.28. So check those out if you or somebody else really wants to get a good sense of God's sovereignty and suffering, or even just God's sovereignty in any kind of difficult circumstance, the crook in the lot and all things for good. Yeah. So now that I've stalled out for a bit, do you have anything that you want to recommend in this subject? Yeah. So the first thing I'll recommend, and, and this probably sounds a little bit self-serving, but it it's hopefully not. Um, the series that you read on uh, Public Domain by J.C. Ryle um, called On Prayer Man, that just rocked my world in terms of of the the purpose and necessity and the vitality of prayer. So it just in general, everyone should go listen to that. But especially someone who's struggling and wrestling with the theology of prayer on some level, like I've said, prayer is one of those spiritual disciplines that teaches itself. The more you do yes. it, the more you want to do it. And so the more you do it and then the more you want to do it. Um, and, and it's important to just, you just have to start like you, just like if you're wanting to learn running at some point, you just have, you can read all the books, you can think all the thoughts, but at some point you just have to tie your shoes and get out there. Um, and prayer is the same way. At some point you just have to get down on your knees and get out there. So go listen to that. I think it will edify everybody who listens 
to it. And and the second thing is a little bit more practical. Um, there are several people in my life that I know that have health difficulties um, that for one reason or another, they are reticent to share with other people about these difficulties. Um, and it's not my place to judge or assess whether they should be more open or not. Um, but my uh, recommendation is is more of an exhortation or an admonishment. I don't know what you want to call it, but you don't need to know the details in order to rightfully to like rightly pray for somebody. So I know the people that I know that have health concerns and health difficulties that are very private about it. Um, it's been it's been difficult for them. And I can see it when someone asks them to share details about their their health issue and they're not comfortable with that. It sort of like puts a screeching halt on the sort of spiritual edification that can happen through that prayer interaction or relationship. So so there's no there's nothing that says you have to know the details about someone's situation in order to pray for that person. Because just as the Holy Spirit intercedes for us in terms of our inward groanings, he intercedes for us in that we genuinely can pray and say, I don't know what's going on with this brother or sister, but they have shared that they have a health challenge. And I would just love it if the Lord would solve that health challenge for them. So Lord, please bring your healing, right? The son has healing in his stripes. And although we are only promised that in the resurrection, you know, we can pray boldly that God would heal a person who is struggling with a health challenge or a difficulty. Um, you know, I, I have, um, I don't know if I'd call him a friend, but the, uh, an online acquaintance who's an, he's an Eastern Orthodox guy. Um, but I, I do think that he trusts and loves the Lord. Um, so I, I would consider him to be someone who's regenerate and is just very wrong about some things. But one of the things that um, I see him do on Facebook frequently, and it, it kind of humbles me a little bit, is he will frequently post a, uh, a, a comment on his Facebook that's something like, please pray for Jimmy. You don't need to know why. Just please pray for Jimmy that that God would do what he is going to do and that God would be glorified. And I think if we learn to pray more like that, especially for our brothers and sisters who have these difficult situations that are maybe they want to share, but sometimes it's really hard to talk about those things without kind of like losing it or or sliding into a depression. Someone who's been struggling with a chronic health condition for a long time, sometimes the last thing they want to do is be reminded of their own chronic health condition. So so don't push for details. Be confident to pray apart from those details and and let them share as much or as little as they uh, as they want to. Um, sometimes it's OK to push a little bit because I think sometimes we can pray more effectively if we can be more specific. But we don't want to disrupt the the unity between brothers and sisters and cause a riff um, for something that we don't actually really need. That's well said. I love that encouragement because you're absolutely right. If you're experiencing going through something that's difficult, it's sometimes hard to talk about that kind of thing. And at the same time, I would encourage those who are to find the people that are close to them and perhaps even just those with whom they worship. And would you try or maybe do better at asking for prayer? Yeah. Accepting that you need help sometimes and that's okay. And if you're on the other side of that and you know there are people in your sphere that need prayer, all you have to do, and I know this by experience, all you have to do is just remind them that you're praying for them. Yep. And that's enough. Well, that's really enough. You also have to really pray for them. Yeah. I, <laughs> I mean, I hope that, cause yeah, you do. And you're right. I mean, that's true. Like we, we shouldn't, that is one of my pet peeves too. I deny that all day. Like 
do not say that you'll pray for somebody if you're not actually going to do that. It's better for you to just keep quiet than it is for you to say what sounds like a Christian thing, yeah. some kind of you know normal just... It sounds like that's what we're supposed to do is to make that acclamation as if we're just saying, well, I have compassion on you. That Do not say that you'll pray if you're not going to. Yeah. But for those that work, are going to commit themselves to that and will pray, not only will that be a, a special spiritual bond between you and the Father, but also between you and, and the person for whom you are praying. Yeah. And there's something glorious, I think, that by design God has put together in that particular relationship. So once again, I just love this brother, and I'm going to be praying for him. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, like regardless of, of how he feels about the way that we've addressed this question, he can't stop me from praying for his healing. Yes. <laughs> that's, and that's where I'm going to be at because I think that that's what God has commanded us to do. So I hope that's like a word of encouragement to everybody, for those who are praying for someone who is going through something rough, no matter what that is, and for those who are going through rough things. And so I think what you just ended with, that word of encouragement is right on the money. Well, thank you for that. So... um I'll close with one last thought. So our listener kind of uh, alluded to the fact that he's praying that God's will would be done and that God would be glorified. And this is the thought that I want to leave us with. And and maybe a, a tiny bit of a challenge and pushback for this listener is we have no reason to think at this moment in time, we have no reason to think that God does not desire to be glorified through a miraculous healing of whatever Amen. illness or malady is, is assailing you. We have no reason to think that God does not desire to be glorified by surprising the doctors, by surprising you, by surprising your family and taking this illness away in a moment. So that's, that's the end that I'm going to be praying for is that the next email we receive from this brother is that he went to the doctor and the tests were all cleared. Now, if that doesn't happen and, and it very well might not, if that doesn't happen, that still doesn't mean that God doesn't desire that. And that God isn't going to do that. It just means he isn't going to do that now. And we may find that God never does that. And that means that he desired to be glorified a different way. But here's the kicker, that expression of faith. When we pray for something that we know is according to God's will, because he commands that we do it in the Bible, that is glorifying God in and of itself. So we should never be ashamed of praying to that end. We should never be ashamed of claiming, not in the crazy charismatic name and claimant sense, but genuinely claiming the promises of God. God genuinely in the scriptures promises us that if we pray in his son's name, he will give us what we ask for. And he will do that if we pray according to his will. So I'm not promising this person healing, but as I said, we have no reason to think that God does not desire to be glorified in that. So that's the way I'm going to be praying. Um, and, and I'll continue to pray that way until the spirit leads me otherwise. Man, just in case, was my amen not loud enough there? I want to make sure you hear. <laughs> amen. Yeah. Amen. Well, this is, I really enjoy talking about you with talking to you about this, Tony. Like one of the things I appreciate about our conversations is that we can kind of just come to a place where it's going to sound lame, but like, this is a safe place Yeah, <laughs> and we, and we can talk about these things and sometimes they, these things are hard and try to flesh them out and try to understand what it means to be obedient and to know God's will and to submit to it. So thanks for making this a place where we can just dialogue about this kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I think that this is a topic that Christians need to spend more time talking about. I agree. I agree. And this is one of those unfortunate topics where 
unless something quite honestly bad happens yeah. to you, you often don't think about it. You're not really forced to process it yet. So if, again, if you're not going through something, this is a great time to really begin contemplating these types of things. Yeah. Well, Jesse, thanks for uh, bringing this topic up. Thanks for bringing this email to the forefront. And until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. <laughs>